This is Glenn Crooks on frame. For the fourth consecutive year, the New York City Football Club failed to advance past the Eastern Conference semifinals in the MLS Cup playoffs. For the first time as Eastern Conference regular season champions in 2019. And it was Toronto FC, like they had in 2016, who struck the fatal blow. The focus in the Bronx is the head coach, Dome Tehran. His contract runs through the 2020 season, but his post-match comments intimated that the 2-1 loss to TFC on Wednesday at City Field could have been his last with New York City. More on that in a moment. Also today, an interview with the author of Stateside Soccer. His name is Tom Scholes, a native of England who is fascinated with the history of soccer in the United States. And we'll take a close-up look at his research on Major League Soccer, especially New York City FC. The MLS was so desperate to get a New York Metropolitan side in that they approached owners of the Yankees and the Mets. And, you know, the Mets owners... I. I they're, not, they're notorious for not being very good, I'm sure, but they turned this opportunity down because they didn't realise and they didn't think it would be that good of a venture. They didn't think, you know, it would be worth their time. So the Mets turned down the league, MLS, and the Yankees said, yes, Tom Scholes, and his new book, Stateside Soccer, later on frame. Meanwhile, New York City FC is plotting its future with or without its head coach for less than two seasons, Dolme Tehran. Tehran has not been bashful about the issues that he's had coaching in Major League Soccer, the schedule, the travel, the playing matches during the international break. It has often sapped the energy and joy out of him in what turned out to be the most successful season in the five-year history of NYCFC. So naturally, the question came up after the loss to Toronto, will he be back in 2020? I don't know. Uh, I have to. I have to. Uh, to go to Manchester to talk about, because uh, for me it's normal after the the season to talk about what happened. But this season happened many many things. Uh, you maybe you don't know, but I know many many things. And I have to talk with the with the owners, with the CEOs in the City Group, and I don't know what will happen. Uh, uh, we have time, uh, right now is October, we have time to talk about uh, the next year, but uh, don't worry because uh, if Dome is not here, the next trainer uh, uh, for sure, uh, uh, the, the most important thing is the club, they have a good, good team, uh, good players, amazing players and uh, no doubt uh, about if Dome is the, the head coach or the, another coach. Uh, he can play really well with this this kind of players. The most important thing is not the coaches, the players. I, many times I say the, the the soccer belong to the players because I believe in that. And the most important thing, and every single club are the players, not the coach. To piggyback off that question about whether you'll be back next season, do you want to be back here in New York coaching NYCFC? I need I need to talk about with the, uh, in Manchester because. Uh, uh, this this season was a, a, a tough tough season for us, for everybody. Many things happened this year, but the, the the people don't know that. Uh, and and we we were able to to win the the Eastern Conference. We have in the middle in the budget. The people don't know that. And I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we we need uh, one striker in the first uh, six uh, or seven games. I don't know. I, I need to. I need to talk about about uh, the CEO in, in Manchester. The, but it's not important. Believe me, it's not important. They are ready. They are ready. They are ready for another coach because they they are a group, a big group. They are ready. No, don't worry. Don't worry. It's not. It's, Patrick is not here. It's Dome. It's Dome. It's not here. Another coach. The, the important. Believe me, the players. They. Uh, keep the important players right now in, in our club, and they are the reason why uh, uh, New York City play really well. For me, the not Dome, eh? forget about it. Dome has uh, one idea, but uh, every single coach need uh, the players follow you, and the players follow me. I'm very proud of the players, 
I I want to thank the players every single day, every single in the training session. They fight uh, until the last moment. Uh, I love these players. I love these players. So uh, a lot to digest there. Uh, I want to bring in uh, a colleague of mine. He's the TV commentator on the Yes Network for New York City FC. He was at this press conference, watched the game. Joe Tollison. Uh, Joe, uh, to kick this off, this was pretty uh, startling almost at the end. I was with you. Uh, we both went over to just uh, say, uh, you know, good job, good year, Dome, shake his hand. And uh, what was the exchange you had with him? Yeah, I mean, exactly like you said. And part of it, too, was just, uh, in a way, thank you for the time. Uh, a lot of people may not realize uh, the amount of time he carves out in a schedule to make himself available to the broadcasters and whatnot. And I just wanted to say thanks. And, you know, I could understand his frustration from a coaching standpoint because this was a game that was lost uh, by two defensive mistakes. This isn't something that the coach could really plan for. Uh, the poor backheader by Maxime Cheneau and then the challenge by Ronald Matarita. So it could understand his frustration. So I, as you said, just wanted to say thank you. And he looked at me and he, and he smiled that wry smile he has and said, that's soccer, good luck next year. Um, which was a little perplexing, of course. You know, it was definitely said as though good luck next year because I'm not going to be around for it. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I was there next to you. He just kind of turned and walked away after that. Uh, not in a rude way. It was just, you know, he was done and uh, he's he was uh, moving on uh, to whatever the next step is, which right. was the next morning. He had a team breakfast. They had a training session because there were actually uh, some reports I heard that he flew back to Manchester first thing of the morning with somebody from City Football Group. But that uh, that was erroneous. He was with the club. And, you know, and people say, well, wait, the season was over. Why the training? Well, they still had to go through recovery. They're still going to have some kind of postmortem on this whole thing. I think players are going to want to know what's going on. And really the the main troubling part about this, if it is another coaching change, is New York City is in the CONCACAF Champions League for the first time. And that gets underway before the actual MLS season. So there's a lot of preparation to do. And if part of that preparation is going to be derailed because they need to find a new coach and depending on how much of a change in system the new coach wants to implement, uh, this could kind of be a step back for New York City after a fantastic season. Now, even before that, uh, that comment from Dome uh, to you, uh, we were listening. We were uh, we were close to each other in the press room, but we were listening. And as he was going through this, I think everybody was like, wow. You know, because it, it, it became very clear that uh, this could be his last game based on his comments. And you texted to me, uh, uh, Gio Van Bronckhorst. Now, his name had come up recently. Within the last couple of weeks, there was a report uh, out of Manchester that he would be the next coach for New York City, would replace Dome Tehran. Now, what was intimated there is that Tehran had done so well here, he was, you know, earning some interest you know, in Europe, but you come. Right. But uh, Van Bronckhorst, uh, he he is under contract with City Football Group in some unspecified role. He really doesn't have a title. So, and then you add on to that, and I whispered in your ear that night. You know, Girona fired their coach uh, just this past Monday. So uh, that's Dome's hometown club. That's the yeah. last time he was a first team manager was twelve years ago. 13 years ago at Girona before he went on the Pep Guardiola journey. So there, uh, there are a lot of things meeting at the same time here. Without a doubt. You know, for those who don't know, Girona currently in uh, the second division in Spain um, and, you know, trying to see what they can do to maybe get back up into La Liga. Uh, as far as Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, you know, part of those rumors began for me Um you know, we talk about the time that Dome carves out to meet with the broadcasters, and part of that time is when we meet with him right before games. And we walked in one day right before the game to meet with Dome, and standing there talking to Claudio Reyna was Gio Van Bronckhorst. Um, so that's kind of a start of, wow, okay, you know, what's going on here? Why is he here? Uh, coupled with, the, you know, some of the rumors and whatnot. So I guess I guess the positive in all this, if this is what's going to happen and, and Dome is leaving, and again, 
I know there are people who were really frustrated at the beginning of the season, and there were all the Dome out, uh, Dome out chants and everything. But I always felt people weren't keeping the long-term goal in sight. And, and the reason, I guess, maybe I, I was willing to have patience is I hadn't won a lot of games, but I hadn't lost either. And in my mindset, if you finish the season with eight draws or nine draws, does it matter if five of them came in the first six weeks or if they were all spread out throughout the season? Um, there was a plan he was putting in. You, you saw some moments of it. Some of the time they just weren't finishing. Uh, and that came around. They got Eber. And, you know, we, we know the season they had, a record-setting season for the club, uh, where they came up short in a game that the only two chances they gave, that they allowed goals on were on their own mistakes. Uh, so, you know, I can understand that frustration from the fan standpoint that the only team uh, of the top four seeds, the, the one seed in each conference and the two in each conference that haven't made the conference finals, is New York City. So I understand there's a lot of frustration and all that, but there was a lot of good things out of this season, and I was really interested to see what Dome could do um, in another season where he's he truly is finally accustomed to everything going on in the league. Well, what's also interesting, Joe, and we're with Joe Tollison, TV commentator uh, for New York City FC on the Yes Network. Going back to uh, Van Bronckhorst, Tehran uh, gave a very recent interview to a, a podcast in Spain. It's called Salama Soccer. And uh, a colleague of ours and a good friend, John Rojas, has translated that podcast for me. And it's interesting because Tehran goes back to that uh, opening six matches of the season, winless. And in Minnesota, uh, it was a 3-3 draw, and that was the sixth game to start the season, still without a victory. And Brian Marwood uh, had shown up. He is the uh, he directs the city football group satellite clubs, uh, which includes New York City FC. So he was there for that match. And then also DC United, the following match on the road, which probably saved Toronto's job and uh, maybe even the New York City season, a 2-0 win against DC United. But the point here is that Toronto told uh, the hosts of this podcast that he uh, felt pretty strongly that Van Bronckhorst was replacing him at that time. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so that's uh, and that's going to be part of a, a, a article I write for Pro Soccer USA coming up within the the next couple of days. But you know, so there's there's so much at play here. Some uh, that uh, has not been previously heard because if you don't uh, speak Spanish, you might not have uh, really caught uh, this uh, podcast or even the fact that it's you know it's from overseas. So we'll uh, we'll dig into I'm, that a I'm little bit really... more. I'm just really interested that they have a podcast called Sayama Soccer and not Sayama Football. Um, so, which is just my, <laughs> my name is, but you know. <laughs> you know, the football soccer thing is starting to blend, I'm noticing. I mean, I'm mean, talking to guys from England, well, they're, they're saying soccer. You know, it's. Uh, well, if we want to go off and on that tangent down the rabbit hole for a moment, I think everybody needs to remember that the term soccer came from Britain, came from England back in the mid 1800s, and it was a way to delineate. Uh, association football and rugby football uh. and somehow with the SOC and association uh, they came up with the term soccer I mean we go to one of the the tragic events in the in the history of the game and that's the Munich air disaster uh, and one of the headlines in one of the papers in London is soccer air tragedy uh, to talk about the Manchester United uh, air crash when they were returning from Munich. So it wasn't that long ago that even the Brits were using soccer when so often now all we hear is them go, that's right, you call it soccer. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and any time anybody says that to me, I said, that's because you gave us the word. Thank you very much. That's right. Thank you. Well, I go, I go both ways. I go soccer uh, or football. Uh, Joe Tollison, uh, TV commentator, Yes Network, uh, New York City FC. Uh, it, uh, it seems to be uh, that it will be an interesting offseason looking at the coach. November 21st is a big day. That's when uh, the, uh, the rosters become more solidified, and uh, New York City will have to make some decisions on some players by then. And, uh, and then the CONCACAF Champions League draw which comes up in early December. And like you said, uh, that's the, this whole coaching um, uh, issue, if, if, if that's what it is, or uncertainty might be the better word, uh, makes that preparation a little bit more tricky. Well, the, the thing that's going to be interesting, is it's what we were told when Patrick left and went to France and Dome Laurent came in, was it won't be that big of an adjustment for the team 
as they coach a very, very similar system. Now, there's nuances to every coach for certain. Uh, and so I guess that's the thing from Giovanni van Bronckhorst. You know, he had coached at Feyenoord, but is, is his system now is what, you know, and he left and went to City Football Group and said he wanted to learn more um, in a company this big. And I'm curious, you know, how much is Giovanni Bronckhorst going to say this is, if, if it's him, uh, I'm making an assumption here, of course, this is the system I want to play or I need to implement the system City Football Group likes to play across their clubs. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see because if it, if it's the latter, maybe it's not as much of an adjustment for the players. And on the players' standpoint, with the finalizing of the rosters, let's keep in mind some of the very key pieces of the puzzle are already locked up. They signed Maxi Morales to a contract extension. They signed Anton Tenerholm to a contract extension. Um, already under contract was Eber. Uh, you know, so they're they're in the core players. I think they're in a good spot uh, of of where to go going forward. It's going to be some of those guys that you you kind of plug the pieces to injuries, yellow card suspensions, international duties, uh, that it's going to be curious who, who stays and who goes. All right, Joe, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing. And, uh, you know, I, I think you feel the same way uh, I do. Uh, we would be uh, hopeful that uh, Dome Torrent and his staff would stay. There was a lot of growth. But, uh, you know, life and soccer continue. No matter who's well, around, you know? It does. And one thing to remember on all this, too, that we, we really haven't touched on, uh, and before I say that, I like to preface it with, I do want to point out that in my tweet, uh, when he told me, I'm going to miss you, and I put that out on Twitter, uh, well, I'm sorry, when he said, good luck next year, my thing was, I'm going to miss you. And, and, and the way he coached, uh, he was a good guy to be around. I felt I learned things from him. He was, you know, so I'll miss him from a personal standpoint. Um, but there was also comment made the next day um, about, I really like my staff. And if I were to go somewhere else, I will bring them with me. And I guess the question in that, too, is how many of the assistant coaches at New York City Football Club does he consider part of his staff? Does it mean he brings everybody including Javi Perez and Robert Sugian, who had been there before he got there, or is he talking about the core group around him who he brought in when he was hired? So that'll be something to watch for as well. Well, I know he uh, grew close and fond of both Javier and, and Rob and what they brought to the table, but then he brought his group over, including Albert Pook, who uh, was his top assistant, you know, that have the uh, the Bar Barcelona times uh, ties. So... Uh, Yep, uh, a lot to ponder, a lot to look closely at, and uh, and Joe, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. You bet. Tom Scholes is the author of Stateside Soccer. He's also a social media producer at Talk Sport and a writer and a, and a podcast host for These Football Times, but it's a Stateside Soccer. That's our focus today. American football, well, or soccer, however you want to call it. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. How you doing? Not bad, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. And, and I don't care if you call it football or soccer. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I, you know, it troubles some people, but I, I don't really care. So so you're um, in uh, London right now or just outside of London? Milton Keynes, as you told me. Did you uh, watch Deli Alley when he came through? Well, I, I didn't realize it until much later on, but we used to play like estate games. So in Milton Keynes, it's split up into different estates. So I live in one called Oldbrook, and he he lived in another one further out and every now and again we'd like play each other's estates to kind of see who was better you know kind of kind of like a like a turf war i guess but yeah, in yeah. the nicest way possible and at the time when we were younger leicester leicester city were taking a lot of our milton Keynes' young players because the mk dons weren't fulfilling it in that regard so you know, Deli Alley was one of the ones that stayed up at MK Dons, and we would play against him. We would play up against uh, Ben Chilwell, who's now Leicester in England left back. So, you know, you, you don't realise that at the time, but then you go later on and you kind of go, I, I recognise that name from somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from, you know, so I think he, I think them to have done marginally better than I have, but, you know, there's still time for me to become a, to score at a World Cup. I'm not ruling it out just yet. I'm still young. There's still time, but well, no, yeah, we. Well, we you've were, got that. You've got we that last name. You've got the last name Skulls. So I've got to ask you before we get into the book. I mean, any relation to Paul Skulls? And 
If so or if not, uh, do you have uh, his vision in the midfield? I do have his vision in the midfield. I do have his passing ability. I do have his tackling ability, but I'm afraid I, I'm not related to him. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a fun nickname to, a fun surname to have rather. And um, I, I must admit that when I, as soon as you mentioned the name, I had to smile because every time I meet somebody, or every time I come across somebody and they look at my name, they always give me the look of, uh, "You're related to him, aren't you?" And I, I kind of. For the first half of time, I kind of went, no, no, I'm not. But then I, I gave in. And I just thought it'd be funny just to say, yes, I am. So there's probably a lot of people that think I am related to him uh, when I'm, I'm I'm really not. Or at I, least I don't know I am. Yeah, you got to have some fun with it, man. Do, do your friends call you Skolzy? Yeah, yeah no. they all do. Everyone at work does, you know. Um, it's, it's, if you've got a name that can have a Y at the end of it, that is what your name will be called. You don't have a first name. So I'm I would be Scolzy, you'd be Crooksy, that's it. You don't have a first name. It's just an, it's just a Y <laughs> at the end of your surname. So yeah, people have called me that for years. Uh we're with Tom Scolzy, he's the author of Stateside Soccer. So let's get to the book and uh with Major League Soccer, the playoffs upon us. I do want to spend most of our time on the history of the league uh, as it is portrayed in your book, but uh let, let's start let's just go back maybe to the beginning. So, according to your research, when did we actually start playing competitive soccer in the States? Like 11 aside, where the rules are at least somewhat similar to what we see today? Well, this is, this is what I thought and kind of like kicked off this whole project for me was I didn't, I, I asked myself that question a couple of times myself. I asked it to myself and wondered, you know, it didn't just start with the NASL back in the back in the day you know it was it must have gone further than that because you can't just implement something like that and it did well, excuse me it, it went further back than that and you know you have to go back to like the eight, the late 1800s to get the first in, incarnation of you know what would become soccer and I found that incredibly interesting it was based around like university games and there was there was a particular game or a particular sport that was a mixture of American gridiron football and soccer. And it was and it was kind of played on university campuses and there was just one moment in time where they kind of branched off to become their own separate things and one became, you know, American football and the other became soccer and, you know, it kind of bounced from there. So the origin of the NFL and the origin of that original game is it comes from the same place as where soccer originated from in the university campuses in the north east of the United States. And it's, it, you know, I know, and I, I know, uh, well. I know the, uh, the birthplace very well where I used to coach at Rutgers university. And it's interesting, November 6th, 1869. And I did a little piece, uh, about this not long ago, uh, because it's the 150th anniversary of American collegiate football this year, because that was called, a football game by some, the first college football game by some, and the first college soccer game by some because of that blend that you were just talking about. So it's pretty interesting. Exactly. I, I, when I found that out, I kind of looked and just went, hey, there might be actually, there might be something in this. So I kept researching. I kind of looked at the early times of professional leagues where it was organized. It wasn't just people. It wasn't just 11-a-side teams playing each other for the sake of it. It was actual competitive leagues and that's where it kind of spiraled off and i thought you know looking at where it came from and how everything you know formed into one thing and how it ended up branching into two separate sports that it kind of and with the aid of uh, immigrants that had come over from like portugal and italy and germany that brought and, and, and you know you know the, the united kingdom that brought their own version of the game over it kind of amalgamated into this perfect you know what people want soccer to be now where it came naturally it was performed by people from different kind of backgrounds that have their own different ideas of what it, the game would be played like and you know there's various reports of where different uh, immigrants and different you know, nation people from different nations settled in certain areas of the united states and those teams would play each other and they would have different styles because the you know the primarily portuguese uh, states and the primarily Portuguese teams would play one way and the primarily German teams would play another because they brought over their respective styles from their own countries and I thought that was incredibly fascinating and you know given the time that we live in now where it seems to be like the hot topic of 
discussion of you know immigration and everything like that and just you know not to get into politics or anything like that but i thought it was incredibly interesting that even when you go that far back it still has a you know it's still a game that runs on the influence of people from across the world and it, it can never ever be centralized into one nation or you know you can never have players from one nation play in a league it has to be different ideas from different places and you know looking back at how it started and where it came from and where it kind of snowballed in such a quick way in those early years was fascinating to me. Well, and the first World Cup is 1930, so talking about immigration, uh, that's uh, the U.S. national team uh, participated in that first World Cup. But it, to me, when I, I look at the roster and some of the people that you describe, it, it had that uh, it resembled maybe a, a Scottish national team <laughs> because of, uh, yeah. you know, all the, uh, you know, the dual citizens that were, you know, the, the Scottish boys who had uh, immigrated. And, you know, one story uh, I found very interesting was uh, Jim Brown. And you did a great job. You went through each player and kind of told their little story. But tell us about him a little bit. He came from Scotland to find his father who had uh, already uh, emigrated so uh, and and he had never really played the game uh, seriously in Scotland so tell tell his story well he was you know from Scotland as was the majority of the squad and then his father emigrated to America when he was much younger and then he got to an age where you know Jim Brown who is somebody that you know I think most people when they kind of dig into it, would recognise that they've heard the name or something similar before. So he went to America to try and find his father, and he would play you know, soccer in the meantime as like a pastime. And he just got into the game. He started playing, and he became part of like you know. He started playing on a regular basis. He started to, you know, get much better, and people started to recognise this. He ended up, you know, he was in America for so long. He was in the United States for so long that he qualified for dual citizenship. He took it. And then he qualified for the men's national team. And then, oh, excuse me again, he, he qualifies for uh, the dual citizenship, he takes it, and then he qualifies for the ne men's national team, goes and plays in the 1930 World Cup, becomes one of the biggest stars from that American team in it. And, you know, I think I wrote about when the ship was coming back from, you know, South America, docking into the docking back into the United States and there's a fella on a rowboat waiting for the boat to dock because he wanted to sign Jim Brown and everyone kind of looked as if to say who's this absolute loser what's he doing here it turns out he was from Manchester United and he wanted to sign him so he brought him back to the United Kingdom and then he played for Manchester United played for Tottenham Hotspur he played for loads of other teams in England but that all started because of somebody that he went to America not to play, not to you know get a career in the sport. He did it to find his father, and it ended up changing his life in ways that I don't think he could ever have imagined, and it changed it in a way that I don't think he expected it to. And I think that's the that's the beauty of that uh, those early teams and those early history, because you find stories like that, you find stories about people that kind of not accidentally but stumbled to become great stories. It was it was never planned to be, you know that way for Jim Brown it just happened to be that way and I think you know he's one of the he's one of the better stories from it but it's like you said there were so many different Scottish players because they would come over for work purposes they'd play for so long and they would qualify the dual national ship but they take it because it wasn't as easy as it is now where you can fly to and from like Glasgow and Boston or wherever it would be just out of convenience that they'd play for these teams and it ended up being you know I know there's only like four games, four or three games they played in that entire tournament, but it's still the best performing US men's national team ever at a World Cup, and they've never quite replicated it. And I think that's completely fascinating when you consider that fact and the fact there was hardly any so-called you know, fully born and bred Americans yeah. in the team, and even yeah. the star player yeah. was part Portuguese. <laughs> let's, let's move ahead to uh, 1950, because you talk about magic moments and Maybe the uh, the greatest moment in uh, in U.S. history is uh, the upset over England in the World Cup, one 0 June 29th, nineteen fifty. But then the U.S. fails to qualify for the next forty years. Paul Calagiri's shot heard around the world uh, gets uh, the U.S. into the ninety World Cup. Uh, the the um, this rise and fall. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a rise and fall. Actually, you have a chapter chapter rise and fall of the North American Soccer League, and again, it, that's a period of time also where we couldn't qualify for the World Cup. So, what um, 
I mean, if you could, uh, as succinctly as possible, because I know we've uh, advanced through a lot of uh, different words in your book, but what exactly happened? Why, why did we fall into this abyss where we couldn't uh, participate in the, in, the, in the world's event? Because the structure wasn't there domestically to keep creating teams like this. I think one of the reasons why the 1930 team was so successful in their World Cup was because they played in the time where there was the American Soccer League. And it was, you know, it was almost like it was, it was I believed in researching it and looking at it. It was almost ahead of its time in a way where people would come in with loads of money, buy the best players they could and form teams with it. Now, the rules were slightly different back then. They nationalised a lot of people, and the best players, mainly from that league, came through, became played for the you know US men's national team, and they were a success because of it. Now, what happened after the Great Depression was a lot of the, the owners that owned these teams worked in businesses that either went bust or lost, lost loads of money, and therefore their priorities changed. No longer were they looking to have a soccer team, as you know, almost like as a vanity project, you know, how they do now, where it's look at how successful I am, my team can win a trophy. It was no, we need to sell it because it's losing money and you have no other money. So the funding kind of fell out of the game, which meant the talent went down, the talent moved elsewhere, the standard went down, and it kind of just spiraled out from there. And, you know, the 1950 team was, it wasn't primarily amateur, you know, by all means, regardless of what England would say about it at the time, it was not, certainly not like a Mickey Mouse team, which I think is exactly how they described it. It was a little bit different from that, but, and then you go into the NASL, jumping forward a lot, and how they still couldn't qualify for World Cups is because you go through the best players from that time period none of them or maybe one or two of them were american and you can't nationalize pele you can't nationalize rodney marsh george best uh johan cruyff friends beckenbauer G- G- you know Chinalia. you can't do that it's good for the domestic game because it's you know recognizable names that people know and people want to watch the teams but when it comes to the international scene and the men's national team it didn't really work it didn't happen because the the players weren't getting the opportunity to play and if they did they weren't as good as you know this isn't a criticism what i'm about to say some of those american players weren't as good as beckenbauer or pele hardly anybody is but that's the difference is that they were they wouldn't get the they weren't able to, to show their talent in a way and even when they did the teams they played in was centralized around around one star player and when that changed was you know, the 90, 1990 World Cup and the 94 World Cup, obviously, where it was, there wasn't a particular star player in the team, but there was a group of players that were very good. And that's how kind of, I know a lot of people will argue against this at this current moment in time, but I think that kind of changed the direction where a lot of these players went abroad. They went like, they went to Italy, they went to Germany, they went to England, just to play some games and get better. And, you know, you look at how good something like, for example, Landon Donovan was, Clint Dempsey, Brad Friedel, Katie Keller, Tom, Tim Howard, Carlos Bocanegra. They very rarely stayed at home. They all went elsewhere and they were able to perform at higher levels because they were playing against better players, better teams, you know, in Champions Leagues, in Europa Leagues, UEFA Cups, Premier Leagues, Bundesliga, whatever you have it. And it helped the national team as a result from it. There was a bigger player pool to pick from because the better players were being picked up across Europe. Whereas, you know, 1950, that didn't happen. Throughout the NSL era, that didn't happen. And it only really changed in the 90s to the 2000s. Well, and as you wrote, uh, as you you started uh, looking at MLS, they had a five foreign player limit to to try to boost the homegrown, the American players, and uh, get them off the ground. That's no longer in existence. There's an international uh, uh, limit. Uh, We're with uh, Tom Scholes, author of Stateside Soccer. So we're on MLS. So... uh, so from the book, uh, what do we learn about the birth of the league? Was it simply the impact of hosting the 1994 World Cup, or, or was there a lot more than that? Well, the league, it kind of ties in together. There wouldn't be a 1994 World Cup without Major League Soccer, and there wouldn't be a Major League Soccer without 1994 World Cup, because the FIFA rules stated that in order to host a World Cup, you had to have a A-class football league, soccer league, in your country. And at the time, the United States didn't have that. They had, you know, B tier. They had like a C tier. And I think they even had like the, the last dying embers and remnants of an indoor soccer league. So what they needed to do was they originally wanted a previous World Cup. If I remember correctly, it was the 86 World Cup, which they couldn't get because they didn't have the right infrastructure for it. And they they waited until 94 and they 
managed to pass MLS and they said, right, MLS is coming in in 1996. Hey, FIFA, we have a league. It will be in place, just not right now. Can we have this? Like They've been for the World Cup and FIFA recognised, OK, they, they, they tick everything off the list. They've got everything that we need. They've got the stadiums. They've got the facilities. It's tailor-made for a World Cup. And they passed it. And as a result, MLS came out, out at the end of that, two years later, and it's been on, you know, 20, 23 years later. And I think, you know, if the 94 World Cup hadn't have been a success, I don't think it would have been taken off as much as it did. But, you know, obviously we'll never be able to tell that, we'll never, never be able to know. But... Yeah, with it, I think MLS. It was just, it was just, it was just a perfect time for it. I think it was after, in my like, the '94 World Cup, in my opinion, is one of the most influential World Cups worldwide that people don't give it recognition for because you look at how that's presented in comparison to the 1990 World Cup, and it's streets apart. The '94 World Cup was a World Cup that people wanted to be, you wanted to watch because it was bright, it was colourful, it, you know, advertisers were involved, and I think MLS kind of helped that in how they presented it, they took a lot of influence from it. So I think that was the big key. They both wouldn't have happened without each other, but they needed each other to happen in order for it to come right, together. Right. It, it, it sounds like a mess, but it makes sense. <laughs> that does. Well, in the Metro stars, uh, New York, New Jersey, Metro stars, I believe is what they were called. They were one of the original franchises. And I, I found it interesting, I, I just personally didn't know that, that uh, they were nearly named the New York Cosmos, but the owners refused to pay for the name. I mean, the Cosmos name, I, I would have, even still today, if, if I'm walking around the streets of Milton Keynes and I ask somebody, name a, name a soccer club in, uh, in the States, would people still say the Cosmos? Is that still the name that resonates worldwide, do you think? They'd get their, to be honest, I, I think a lot of teams would probably name a couple more, a couple of MLS, people would name MLS teams. To be perfectly honest, all right. You know, now, now whether that's because of the, you know, they think the names are goofy or something like that, or because they've seen them on television or they've seen them on social media. But at some point, I think if you showed people a New York Cosmos shirt, they'd understand what it is. I remember when you know they they the, the rebirth nearly happened in twenty thirteen, you know, like the early two thousand. I think it was like twenty thirteen or something like that. Um. People recognised what it was. They understood what it was. It wasn't a new team. It was a, the new version of an old team. So I think, personally, and I don't know how you, I don't know what your take is on this. I think it's suffering because the MLS is suffering because it doesn't have that recognition. It's an instant brand recognition that comes with history. You know, I but think, the, but they had the you, you mentioned. You were you were referring to that. I think. So first of all, the the Metro Stars. All right, we're not paying this. Uh, do you have any idea what the fee was to to acquire the name? Is that was that a? I, mean, I don't uh, think it was ever. I don't think it was ever publicly released. All right, we're gonna to have to get. To, we'll have to get Charlie Stilatano on that one. And then, uh, <laughs> then the Cosmos had a. They they were offered an opportunity. There there seemed to be a desperation to get a, a second team in the New York metropolitan area, specifically in the five boroughs. And this is before New York City FC was born. And the Cosmos. What's the story behind that? They just didn't. You know, again, what I remember hearing is, well, they they had no interest in paying the uh, the the expansion fee or or whatever that was to get in. I guess they thought uh, that was somewhat uh, like robbery. But what, so the Cosmos had a couple of that name. Had, there were a couple of opportunities for that name to be part of the league. It's almost it's it feels at this point like it's destined not to come in. Because it's like you said, they had the initial you know, the, the Metro Stars could have been the Cosmos, but they didn't want to pay the fee. Of the of the image rights and the naming rights to to do it, they just wanted to come up with their own one. They were offered a second chance because MLS, like you said, was so desperate. They were so desperate to have an actual New York team and not a New York team that wasn't in New York but called themselves New York for you know purposes of whatever they want to whatever they want to say. But I think they were so desperate to have a New York team, especially one like the Cosmos that people would know, and they had they had people attached to it anyway and i think that's what they recognize they looked at it and just gone okay 
there is Pele, there is so many other people at Beckenbauer. I think Eric Cantona got involved at one point, and I'm not entirely sure why, but he got involved in the marketing. They play against Paul Scholes in his testimonial. I don't know why. Maybe, obviously it was marketing, but I don't understand why that was picked. But that was the instant recognition of people knew who they were, and people were familiar with them. Because if you if people don't know MLS now, or they have a vague memory of it, like you said, they will know who they are. They will remember something about it. People in New York, I'm sure, will also know something about it. They may not know a lot, but they will know something about it. And I think MLS realised this, wanted to capitalise on it. They were so desperate to get a team in the New York metropolitan area that they tried so hard to get them. But the, the powers that be at the Cosmos kind of looked at it and just went, it's not worth the money that they'll spend. They didn't think it would make financial sense. And to be honest, it probably wouldn't. It probably wouldn't. Because, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about stadium issues in a minute, but they, I think they foresaw they didn't have the required facilities at that moment in time to make it a sustained sustained success for the money they were paying to, no. to join the league. And that's uh, Rocco Camiso, who still owns the Cosmos. They're still uh, they're trying to figure out where they're going to play next, but uh, it's still there. It's still in existence, and he's spending a lot of his time with Fiorentina now as well and and certainly he had some squabbles with Don Garber the commissioner of MLS and I think the way he arrived uh, with the league and and what his stamp has has been Tom uh, is uh, is pretty interesting what he, he came from NFL internationals which I tell us what that is but I, what I re- remember reading is that he increased the revenue of this outfit by 250 percent and that was the uh, that was the attraction to getting Garber in I think yeah, he's he was involved in I think it was NFL International and NFL Europe, and they, I didn't I didn't realize this until I started this. There was an NFL league in across Europe, so kind of like a Champions League of NFL teams that weren't in the proper NFL. They were European teams that were under the NFL guise, and I thought that was mad. I thought that makes no sense. <laughs> but when you look back on it, you look back on it. It's it, it kind of like increased the brand to, to an extent that if people got interested in that, they would look at what the actual NFL is, they would get increased in that, and now look at what it's become. Look at what it's become over like here in England, how big it is across the world. It's bigger than I think most people probably would have expected it to be. And I'm sure Don Garber will take immense credit for you know, the, the attraction of it in the United Kingdom. Whether he whether he was as influential as he might think, I'm not entirely sure, and I'm, I'm not in a position to say whether he was massively influential or whether he wasn't. But as you, as you the stat you laid out there, he clearly had a big part in it, and they didn't. MLS wanted to bring someone in that would increase the brand recognition so people would understand what it is. And to be fair, I'm sure there there are a lot of things you could label at Dongar before what he hasn't done well and what he has done well. You know. I think we're looking at it right now with the you know, the single game MLS Cup playoffs. They're incredible. They're so fun. And now yeah, I wanted to bring that up did, with you, though. It, they have been. They've been uh, really. Uh, you they've know, been I, amazing. I, look, I, 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 I am. Um, I give MLS a hard time on a lot of different levels, but uh, in this manner, where they've adjusted to the single game elimination. But in your conclusion of your book. Uh, you say there is no doubt that promotion re- relegation is needed. I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to MLS. Now, why do you yes. say that? And then the thing I had here, and you already said it, that it what do you think of the single elimination playoff format, uh, and which wouldn't exist with promotion relegation, really? I look at how teams play and look at the games when there is something to play for in every game. I'm sure there are games in the middle of the MLS season that are between teams that can't get into the playoffs, can't move, can't do anything. They know they're not going to go down. They know there's going to be no repercussions. And they just it's just not as fun as it could be. Yeah. Now, I, 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 under, I, understand, that it, I understand it will not happen for quite some time because of the financial reasons and the stability of the other leagues. And, you know, it's, some teams are on knife as knife edge as it, as it is. Owners would not sign up to join a league where they might lose their investment within a single season. You know, in less than a year, they might lose out on their money. I understand that. But just look at how the single elimination playoffs are working now, where teams aren't kind of going into the first game thinking, it's fine, we'll play conservative now and go into the next game trying. 
No, they're trying at the very start. And yes, the quality might not be as amazing as it was one it was at one point. It may not be tactically sound or, you know, people aren't just sat there stroking their chins going, hmm, yes, that was, that's a great bit of defensive manoeuvre, manoeuvring. He's like, no, it's just fun. This is what it should be. It should be just absolute nonsense. And there is nothing better in this sport an absolute nonsense and I was watching the Philadelphia Union game last night against the New York Red Bulls or the New York New Jersey Red Bulls and <laughs> yeah. it, 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 was, it was fantastic it was absolutely fantastic because both teams cared, both teams tried and they realised that they needed to go for it, they needed to go for it in that instance because they were going to be eliminated otherwise whereas last year I think it probably would have gone to about 3 all, maybe and I think both teams would have shut up shop or at least one right. of them would have shot a shot. And it, 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 I just think to implement it, it just adds another level of intrigue to a game. Because if, you know, if LAFC play FC Cincinnati, for example, uh, there's not much riding on it. And it's just a little bit, you know, what could be. And I think, I think most fans look at it and recognize that it would be good. I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't be, but, I think it's only a matter of time until it does come in, but we have to be patient until it does because there's a lot of work that needs to be done until that point. There's a lot of things that need to be realised from not only MLS, but from other leagues. You know, you were saying there that the New York Cosmos might not have anywhere to play, and that is a shame. They're trying to figure out where they're going to play next, and that shouldn't be happening at top-level sport. But maybe in five to ten years' time, we can come back and have revisit this conversation. We're talking about teams that are being promoted to MLS that aren't having to spend a gazillion dollars to get in there to finish rock bottom. And, you know, I just, I just, I just think it would be so much better if it was in there. All right. Uh, Tom Scholes, author of Stateside Soccer. Uh, final uh, thoughts. Let's turn to New York City FC and uh, – an expansion side in 2015. Uh, they were officially born in 2013. I, I think, uh, and, and I wasn't aware of this, the irony of New York City FC conducting their playoff games here in 2019 at City Field in Queens is that Mets owner Jeff Wilpon was approached about becoming an owner for the expansion side. Talk about that a little bit. Well, they it's like we were saying earlier about the Cosmos. The MLS was so desperate to get a New York metropolitan side in that they approached owners of the Yankees and the Mets and, you know, the Mets owners, I, I, they're, not, they're notorious for not being very good, I'm sure, but they turned this opportunity down because they didn't realise and they didn't think it would be that good of a venture. They didn't think, you know, it would be worth their time. And then the Yankees took on the... Um, you know, they, they own 50% or a large majority of it. I can't remember exactly the, the percentage they own, but they own a large majority of the of the organization alongside the City Football Group. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, Yankees is, a, as I understand, is 25% Yankees, 75% Man City or City Football Group. I think that's the uh, that's the divvying up, I, I think. I think that, that sounds about right. Um so they were so desperate to get them in that the Mets turned them down and they ended up going to the Yankees instead, which kind of, you know, if ever you could sum up New York baseball in one instance, it's someone turning down the Mets and going to the Yankees and having a good old time with it anyway. Um, that being said, it's almost like a blessing in, in disguise. No, not, sorry, not a blessing in disguise. It was, it was quite the opposite because it's caused so many issues and so many problems. And I think one of the reasons that, I mean, certainly from I, I, you, you will have a different take of this of mine. But one of the reasons it hasn't taken off the way it could have done, when you look at it in comparison to other teams, that are, you know, other expansion teams around the league, is that it does have that attachment to other organisations. It isn't its own individual thing. It is. It does feel like a Manchester, a diet Manchester City that has played that are renting a stadium for the New York Yankees, and it doesn't have. I, I, there's nothing to attach it to unless you are a Manchester City fan. And I think, you know, it, 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 in a weird way, it lacks its own identity. And by getting into the league by, via this method of, you know, forming with the City Football Group and the New York Yankees and the Steinbrenner family, that, that got them into the league. But it's also killing them of uh, identity in a way because they don't have their own stadium like LAFC, and At uh, LAFC does. I mean, Atlanta United shares its stadium, but it was built... For, for the purpose of hosting soccer matches, LAFC has its own look. It has its own 
uh, kind of identity across, you know, it's different to anything else. Same with Atlanta United. New York City FC just looks like another version of Manchester City. And I think, you know, they won't get away from that anytime soon because if they do get away from that, chances are they won't be around for very much longer. But I think it does hurt itself and its identity and people look at it and go, oh, you're just a vanity project for the Manchester City owners and the City Football Group. And it kind of hurts them in that way. So that's kind of the uh, perception uh, where you are uh, in England. Interesting. A, a one final thought, though, a, 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 over uh, across the river to the Red Bulls and BWP, Bradley Wright Phillips, who's from your area and uh, certainly was a, a, a big part of uh, the Red Bulls' success. And, you know, you could, without uh, a whole lot of argument, call him uh, either one of the best or the best strikers in the history of the league. But he finishes off with a header that was wide in the playoff game. Red Bulls eliminated by Philadelphia. You said you were watching the game. What went through your mind as you were wa- watching him uh, perhaps close his career? It, was, it, To be honest, it was the same thing that I saw when I saw CeCe Sabathia come off the mound the other night. It was just kind of, you look at it and go, you don't get the respect you deserve. I know CeCe does. But Bradley Bright Phillips was he's been incredible. And I think people kind of overlook the fact that he left England when nobody did. Nobody left England. Nobody certainly left England at the age he did to come to Major League Soccer. But he embraced it. He took it with respect. He played extremely well. He was an incredible goal scorer. He you know, he will always be remembered for being for, for the second part the second name in his entire name, he would always be known for being Ian Wright's son. But He's managed to form his own kind of legacy across here, across in America. And I think the, what he's managed to do and how difficult it was, it's, it's often overlooked. And I think it's such a shame. I think it's such a shame because he's, he's shown that he is a very good striker. He's shown that he has that instinct. Now, it might not be the level of the Premier League, granted, that his dad played at, but he's probably, you know, well, and also He's one it, of the best it, strikers the league's ever seen. Yeah, and it would it would also be uh, you know safe to say he was played in the shadow of his brother Sean Wright Phillips, who uh, who played for Man City. Exactly, exactly. He was he was dealt a hard bargain in that way because his dad was one of the best strikers England has seen in many years. His brother was one of the best, the most hyped potential England players in, in many times. And you know that's not not to criticise Sean Wright Phillips. I was a massive fan when he was younger. I just think he didn't he didn't fulfil the potential that people had for him because maybe people you know put him put him too high on a pedestal. Yeah. But he was still a very good player and still a very accomplished player at that. So Bradley had he had a lot to kind of like deal with and in a way he had to leave England and come to MLS in order to escape that. And he's formed his own legacy here. And rather than you know. We're going to talk about this now. We're saying about it now. He's no longer known as Sean's brother or Ian's son. He's known as one of the best strikers a particular league has ever seen. And a good standard of the league as well. It's not like he's gone to Cyprus or somewhere like that. He's gone to a a good team, a good league. He held his own alongside Thierry Henry. And not many people can say that. The book is Stateside Soccer. The author, Tom Scholes. Available on Amazon.com. For New York City FC, the season is done. For head coach Dome Toron, his future is uncertain. Thanks very much to Joe Tollison for joining in today. And be on the lookout for my next written piece for Pro Soccer USA about Toron. Is he staying or leaving? The latter appears to be the more likely. That'll do it for this episode. Subscribe on iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify. I'm Glenn Crooks on Frame.